Roger Williams University is hosting a crisis management seminar on May 3rd at their Providence campus. Crises, whether a natural disaster, cyber attack, or financial instability, can have severe repercussions if not handled properly. This is where crisis management plays a pivotal role. Join Roger Williams' MBA students and expert speakers to learn how to prepare for the unexpected. The program is totally free and open to the public. You can register online at rwu.edu slash events slash crisis management symposium. Joining us now on the Seekonk Supply Hotline is the author of this report inside the Providence Journal, Antonia Farzan. Thanks for hopping on. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so take us through where this became a story in your purview and what you've learned about this situation from a practical basis and then also kind of in-depth in terms of the minutiae with respect to why hasn't there been funding granted to deal with the erosion when there's other spots along the, the south coast of Rhode Island that, that there has been money given to deal with erosion. Sure, yeah. So this announcement came out, I believe, Wednesday from the park saying we're going to be closing by Christmas and saying that the town and the state hadn't made it a priority to direct federal infrastructure funds to uh, solving this problem with erosion. So as you can imagine, that, um, you know, really got a lot of people worked up um, and worried about the future of the park. Um, so I did check in with some members of the Narragansett Town Council about what that looks like from their end. And one of the things that came up is there's a lot of complications around the fact that this is privately owned. As you mentioned, you know, there is a lot of federal infrastructure coming in, but it's not clear how much of this money um, can or any of it can go to a privately owned foundation like this, especially because, you know, usually in a case like this, you'll have some kind of conservation easement guaranteeing that the land will eventually go to the state or go to a conservation group like the Nature Conservancy. Um, But that isn't the case here. So, you know, there are questions that arise when you're talking about, you know, the family says it's going to cost tens of millions of dollars to fix this. So you're talking about giving tens of millions of dollars to, you know, a very small foundation just run by two members of the family. And, you know, people have questions about how do we know that we're going to have permanent public access to this spot? Right. I guess that's the other aspect of all of this is in in the rights of way context. If this park closes, is it in violation of Rhode Island constitutional standards, which guarantee a shoreline access point in pretty much every major or practical location? Yeah, I don't believe there would be a constitutional issue there since the Constitution, this gets very technical, but it doesn't guarantee what they call perpendicular access, which means basically allowing you to cut across land to get down to the water. Um, The question would be, you know, is it violating some other terms? Um, And there has not been a lot of transparency from the foundation about this. Um, I spoke to uh, Saul Mullman's daughter, who's essentially the head of the foundation, one of two trustees yesterday, and she would not... Um, go into detail, she would only say there are things that require them to keep this as a public park, but would not give any details about what that looks like. Um, I did find an old newspaper article mentioning there's a trust that said there would be a million and a half dollar fine um, for the trustees if this stopped being a pub- being managed as a public park. Um, so it does seem like there's some kind of restriction um, in that sense that it has to be open. But, I mean, talking to people, you know, in local government, talking to people in local community, there's a lot of confusion about what what guarantees that the public will be able to be there. 
And um, Jesse Pugh, who's the town council president, has made clear, you know, if we're going to be directing the funds and helping to facilitate this, we need some kind of guarantee that the public will always be able to use this for access. Right. And I guess when this was founded, I think the big point is that, hey, look, this wasn't this was prime real estate. There's some interesting details as to how this became available. Number one, it goes back to the credit crisis and Governor Bruce Sundland and 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 his intervention into that and then all into the credit crisis and, and shutting down the credit unions. And then basically properties that were waterfront properties that were in default um, basically were utilized as means to make banks or the state whole. This is no exception. And Mr. Uh, Nolman purchased this, Saul Nolman, instead of developing a hotel or anything else, he made it this public park. But that's unclear if that can it's not like you said it's not the nature conservancy it's nothing like that there is a chance that if this were um and and there is a penalty inside the trust a one and a half million dollar penalty that if this this property were sold by the trust to be developed um you know so that's a disincentive but there's basically a chance that this could become a hotel an apartment complex something like that and that's what narragansett that's what the town of narragansett jesse Pugh want to ensure doesn't happen if they're going to get involved. Right. Yeah. And I mean, the family has made very clear that they have no interest in selling it and, you know, make the very good point that if they'd wanted to do that, we have just been in one of the hottest real estate markets in Rhode Island history. You know, they could have already done that if they wanted to cash in. But I think what, um, you know, people in the community have as a concern is, so what about future generations? You know, how do you know a few generations from now that someone in the family doesn't sit doesn't have a different perspective on this and uh you know a million and a half dollars given what that land is potentially worth to a developer that might not be more than the cost of doing business so yeah um town council president jesse Pugh, he really would like to get some assurances that there is going to be that permanent access of a permanent easement that the public is going to be able to use this in perpetuity at 4.15, we're speaking with Antonia Farzan of the Providence Journal. We're discussing Narragansett's Rose Nolman Park and the potential permanent closure of that by Christmas due to erosion. When it comes to the funding and, and sort of evaluating this from a, 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 an economics and municipal versus state versus federal governmental level, where could money come from other than just some incredibly generous donor? If anyone's out there, by the way, that wants to donate $20 million to uh, <clears throat> this trust, now's your chance to step up. But where could the money come from? How can What's the solution here to actually generate some kind of practical and, and long-term effective strategy to push back against the erosion that's, that's causing the closure of this park? Yeah, I think that's what everyone is trying to figure out right now. Um, and the people on the council who I spoke to yesterday were kind of taken aback by this announcement from the park because they haven't been, you know, claiming that the town hasn't been considering this a priority. Because they said, you know, we are trying to save this. We are trying to figure it away. There is all this funding coming in. And it's kind of a matter of figuring out, um, you know, what can be used where? What are the rules for using this around a private foundation? Um Susan Cicilline Bonanno, who's on the council, mentioned, you know, she's also reached out to the congressional delegation trying to figure out if there's funding there. Um, One possibility that was raised was getting a grant from the Army Corps of Engineers. So it seems like there are a bunch of different potential avenues out there. um, But for the most part, that would require some kind of agreement. Um, And I should say the family has indicated that they are open to doing a conservation easement. Um, They really just want someone to bring them a solution at this point. 
One other thing about this that really jumps out when you when you think about it is it's it's not a common it's not common practice for a private park to be in such an idyllic location and you know I guess is there anything like this in Rhode Island that you could find or in southern New England that that resembles the size and scope of this park the regular recreational use that it enjoys or that people enjoy through it um, this seems like kind of a one-off unless you came across something else that's akin to it. No, I had the exact same question as you and couldn't come up with any equivalents. Um, if anyone thinks of any, let me know. But it is pretty unusual. I mean, you know, it's a company you might have seen back in the 19th century with some wealthy industrialists, but by now it's, um, you know, it <laughs> right. moved into the state's hand or some private, you know, private uh, conservation organization like the Nature Conservancy in some cases. So, yeah, really unusual. And like you said, I mean, the reason this came about was because of the banking crisis. Um, the state took possession of this property so there wasn't briefly an opportunity there where this could have been a state park, um, but the idea was that they were going to sell these properties off to essentially raise some money. Um, so the public just got really lucky that the person who bought it um, was willing to let everyone use it, and that so far his family has um, carried that on. What would be your assessment, I guess, as you look at this situation right now in terms of we, we we value our natural resources here in Rhode Island in in, an, in a significant manner, as we ought to, as everyone really should. There's no question about it. But, you know, the pulse of Narragansett, the pulse of the community, how does this resonate in, in anything you've been able to gather, either through your initial reporting or follow-up after it's come out in the paper or online or on social media? You know, I, I've seen some tweets kind of, pointing to this as, uh, hey, we need to do something about this type of situation that you've raised to a higher level of consciousness here in the state. But but tell us about some of that, some of the initial reaction you're getting. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It seems like there's universal agreement that this park needs to be saved somehow and to be permanently open to the public. So both these things need to happen. We need to fix this erosion um, or, you know, figure out some kind of way to move back, whatever that entails, but to deal with the process so it can be safely open to the public, but also to guarantee that that continues to be the case. Cause it's not just people in Narragansett, you know, it's people all over the state who go down there to surf or, you know, just to sit in the lawn chair and look at the view. Um, one point the local activist who I spoke to made was that, you know, this is one of the few places if you are disabled, you can show up in your car, stay in your car and look out and see the ocean. You don't yep. have to be able to walk. So it's really important to so many people for so many different reasons. And I certainly have not heard anyone who's saying, you know, no, we should let this go. Yeah, um, whatever. Everyone seems to agree <laughs> that something needs to happen. But there there doesn't seem to be a clear agreement necessarily on, you know, what's the source of funding, who needs to be involved, that kind of thing. It's more of the technical details that need to be worked out. At 420, we're speaking with Antonia Farzan of the Providence Journal. It's Bill Bartholomew in for Dan here. We're going to check traffic. If you can just hang on for a few more minutes, and I'd love to get um, back into this. I also want to talk about your license plate thread on Twitter, if you don't mind, for a couple of minutes just hanging on the line there. We'll check traffic. Be right back after that. This is the Dan York Show. 425. It's Bill Bartholomew in for Dan here on WPRO. Hopefully you're having a wonderful afternoon as we wrap up this busy week. Always good to spend time with you out there and, um, you know, be back next week as well on Friday the 17th. We're talking with Providence Journal reporter Antonia Farzan about this 
potential closure of Rose Nulman Park in Narragansett. And it would be a sad thing because it's a place that has become fairly iconic for a lot of people. And it's just a great access point for um, for all, not only Rhode Islanders, for anybody, but particularly for Rhode Islanders to go and hang out on the beach. It's a great surfing spot, a great place to walk, great place to watch the sunrise or sunset. And frankly, it's unique in that it's a privately held uh, via a trust. It's pr- it's a privately held piece of property that has been designated for use as a a park for people to go hang out at. I mean, that's frankly, in, in layman's terms, that's exactly what it is. So, Antonia, I ask you this. Um, you know, erosion is a major issue here in Rhode Island. I mean, just go look at certainly in, in Matunic. Anybody down there can answer that by the ocean mist where they had to construct a seawall. Block Island seeing enormous erosion. We're seeing it in Newport, pretty much all over the state, westerly, whatever it may be. Erosion is becoming a significant issue. Is this story in and of itself? Do you think that the upside to the potential closure or even the closure itself of this park could draw more attention to the practical and near-term implications of erosion and, and not acting soon enough in protecting the coastline from the obvious decline in, in or, or reduction in physical land that abuts the ocean? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case. I mean, I think a lot of this is ha- a lot of question that kind of hasn't been answered with this um, is how did it get this bad in the first place? You know, should something could something have been done sooner? Um, and also, how do we fix this in a way that doesn't change the surf conditions there? Because that is a concern that's come up um, yeah. in a lot of areas. Um, I'm not a surfer or a civil engineer, so I don't know the technical details of <laughs> how that can and can't work. But I know when you are making those kinds of changes, um, that is something that you have to take into account. Yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to monitor it and see what people's reactions are. And, and hopefully, hopefully this, this park can stay open and hopefully it can also sort of develop into an, a wake-up call. Not that there haven't already been significant wake-up calls, but it's it, it could be another one. All right, last couple of minutes here. i got to ask you about your thread on Twitter. This is amazing. You're documenting vanity plates here in Rhode Island. Kind of give us the two-minute summary of what's going on here. I mean, this is just pure entertainment. It's, it's not breaking news, but it's definitely something <laughs> yeah. that I enjoy quite a bit, and I think a lot of people do as well. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Um, anyone who sees a vanity place when they're driving around um, Rhode Island can feel free to send it to me. My email is pretty easy to find online or find me on Twitter, Antonia Farzan. But yeah, I just I take guest submissions. Um, it basically started out just because for my job, I obviously spend a lot of time driving around to random parts of the state. And, um, you know, I grew up here, had been away for a few years. But when I came back, one thing I noticed was that Rhode Islanders really love vanity plates. And I was just and also just kind of weird ones where it's like, why would you want that on a plate? Um, So I had (laughs) kind of been just casually taking photos of them for own entertainment for a while. But yeah, when, once I um, you know started thought, I was like, all right, I'm going to just start posting all of these on Twitter, collecting them all in one place. Um, people really seem to like it. So I've just kept going and now people send them to me. Um, my only rule is that I don't do, you know, the ones that are just people's names or people's initials. It's got to be, you know, whether it's, I've noticed some trends. I've noticed that people with electric cars really like having vanity plates that are some reference to the fact that they have an electric car. They really like letting you know about that. Um, some are just very, a lot of them are, there's a mystery involved, which I think is part of why I like and people enjoy it. If you're kind of guessing, like, why would they choose that for a place? What's the story behind that? 
And most of the time you can't find out because you're either driving or looking at a parked car. Um, and no, no lumber, low number place. That's a separate thing. People keep asking, telling me about that. Like I've never heard of no lumber place. I was born and raised here. I know about the low number. Yeah. Place. There's an Instagram account for those. You get roll, you get plate number one or something like that, or number seven or, or, or just even like 36. And you're just like the king or queen of your respective neighborhood. Um, Antonia Farzan, Providence Journal. Thanks so much for that. And uh, let's keep in touch on this and other issues as well. Thanks for joining us on the Seekonk Supply Hotline. Absolutely. Thank you so much.